Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and it measured out six measures of barley, and he put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it is my privilege to uh, open up the word for you this morning. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ruth chapter 3, if you're not there already. Ruth chapter 3. This is one of the more obscure stories uh, to modern Western ears. If you paid attention to what was read, it's strange. Even if you grew up in the church, this is probably not a sermon that you've really, or rather a text that you've really heard expounded. You probably just heard it used more um, as an illustration. So if you were reading this text this week and you were wondering, I wonder how Jonathan is going to preach this, uh, I'm, I'm curious too. We're going <laughs> to we're gonna find out together. This isn't a flannel graph story. This is, um, this is a little deeper than that. So Uh, If you've been with us, we've been studying this family, uh, really the life of a man named Elimelech and his wife, uh, Naomi. Uh, Life had gotten difficult in their hometown of Bethlehem, this place that was called the House of Bread, uh, found itself in the middle of an intense famine. And so Elimelech, uh, against better judgment and really against what he knew about the character and nature of God, determines, I'm going to make provision for myself. And so he heads out into the land of Moab uh, with his wife and his two young sons, uh, expecting to find work, expecting to find food. Uh, and certainly finds those things along the way. But, but as he arrives in this city, against God's instruction and against what God would have for them, his two sons find themselves marrying Moabite women who did not worship the one true God. 
As the story continues, we find out that Elimelech passes, and very soon after, their two sons, Malon and Kilion, pass as well. And so Naomi is left in this unique circumstance of being a Jewish woman in a faraway land that was at enmity with Israel. And here she is with her two daughters-in-law, neither of whom believe in the one true God. And so she determines, I'm going to go back to my homeland. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I can find bread there. The famine is over. Now I'll be able to find some sort of satisfaction there. I'll figure out how to make my way in this world as a single woman in a, society, in, a, in a society where women's provision was found primarily through marriage or through their sons. And so she tells her daughters-in-law, go back to the lands you came from, worship the gods of your fathers, go back and go away from me. And her one daughter-in-law, Orpah, leaves, but Ruth, the main character in this story, stays. And we find Ruth in chapter 1 really making a covenant with God. She determines in her own heart that she is going to worship the one true God. And so she says to Naomi, don't send me away and don't tell me to go back. I'm going to go with you and your people will be my people and your God will be my God. I'm I'm declaring my allegiance to the one true God of Israel. And what you find in this moment is this foreign woman who worshipped a false god turning, having this conversion experience as she experiences the grace and the mercy and the wonder of God. And as they arrive back in Bethlehem, Ruth goes out to glean in the fields. What farmers would do is they would leave the very edge of their crops, the very margin of their crops, they would leave it for the marginalized so that these people who had nothing and had no provision and had no food could go out and glean, take up the grain for themselves to provide for their families. It was a way for God to demonstrate his covenantal love and provision toward the nation of Israel and a way for God to demonstrate his love for other people through them. So Ruth wanders into this field. The the, the way the verse reads in the beginning of chapter 2 is that she happens upon a field owned by a man named Boaz, this man who we find out later is a kinsman redeemer, related to her now deceased husband, one who ultimately could take on the responsibility of caring for her, providing for her, and loving her. And so Ruth and Boaz, as we talked about last week, begin the very the very early stages of this relationship where they're kind of feeling each other out and having conversations and they're observing one another's character. And at this point in the story, several weeks have passed. Nothing has really come of this burgeoning relationship. And so we see Naomi taking on the role of a Jewish mother, advising her daughter how to proceed. And this is what we find in Ruth chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, which says this, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? That it, may be, that it may be well with you. In other words, I'm concerned for your best interest. I want to make sure that you're taken care of. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. 
At this time, people might have lived all throughout the region, uh, the broader region of, of where Bethlehem was located. But during this time of year, as men were looking for work and trying to, uh, try, trying to find a job, they would go into the city and they would find men who owned fields, men like Boaz, uh, and, and they would say, I want, I want to work for you. So they would move down into the city. They might move into the very barn itself uh, where all of the grain was being stored. And so they would work all day from sunup to sundown. They would eat and have their meals there and they would sleep there as well. People tended to cluster together and so for Boaz and for all the men who are working for him they would come in in the harvest they'd spend all day gathering up grain and then they would have these large rather extravagant dinners in the evening and in this story in particular we find ourselves right at the end of the harvest. This is right before all the men are going to return back to the countryside. They're all going to leave. But what they would do is they gathered up all the grain as they would come into this place called the threshing floor. And as the winds begin to pick up off the sea in the late afternoon and into the evening, the men would gather, they'd take the grain that they had gathered up, they'd throw it into the air, and the wind would carry the chaff, all the the excess husks, all of the things that they didn't need, it would carry those things away, and the grain itself would return and fall to the floor to be gathered and bound up and stored for the winter. Now this is hard, tiring work. And you think about working all day long, literally from the moment you get up to the moment you go to sleep. These men are working incredibly hard. They're trying to get all of this done in a relatively limited time. And so they're working and they're eating and they're sleeping all in the same area. And it's in this environment that Naomi hatches this Sadie Hawkins dance plan (laughs) to try to find a husband for Ruth. And so she says, I want you to wash up and I want you to go put on this perfume and I want you to get your nicest clothes and I want you to go down to where Boaz works and don't let him see you, but from afar off, I just want you to observe what he's doing and while he's eating and while he's having a few drinks, I want you just to watch him and at the end of the evening when he goes in and lays down, I want you to take very careful note of exactly where he's laying because you don't want to go in and lay next to the wrong guy. You want to make sure you're laying next to the right person so you watch. And that's literally, I'm not making that up. That's what she's saying for those of you that are looking at me funny. That's what she's saying here. And then you go in, you uncover his feet, you lay down, and then you wait for him to tell you what to do. Now at this point, I think it's important that we establish that there are are prescriptive and descriptive portions of scripture. There are portions of scripture that tell you what to do, and then there are portions of scripture that just tell you what's going on. And this is the second. This is just telling you what's happening in the lives of these people. This isn't descriptive. This isn't how we find our mates. But it's worth noting that we tend to view a story like this with all of the innuendo of 21st century readers. We live in a hypersexual culture. We have a very sensualized way of speaking and thinking about relationships. And so our tendency, try as we might to, to not give into this, our, our tendency is to read sensuality into the story. And so the first thing to remember is that there's all kinds of cultural elements at play here. There's all kinds of historical elements that led up to Naomi and Ruth's actions. We'll talk about those in a moment. But the second thing to understand, and I think it's worth just taking a moment to consider, is that there is a difference between someone making themselves attractive and someone making themselves seductive. Because what Naomi was encouraging Ruth to to do here was not to make herself seductive. She was not trying to somehow trick or trap Boaz into something. But rather what she's saying is make yourself presentable. 
Now, all that said, I'm not convinced that this is actually the best plan that Naomi could have come up with. And it's interesting, as you begin to read commentators talking about this passage, their opinions uh, vary widely from person to person. And so there are some people, some commentators that you read where they say right off the bat, it really didn't matter what the cultural context was. This is a very odd thing for Naomi to suggest to Ruth. It put her in a position potentially of danger as a single young woman going out into the city at night, uh, it, it, both from wild animals or from other people. Uh, also, it was potential, there was potential for her uh, reputation to be hurt by virtue of the fact that she was going down to where all the men were sleeping and living. And so some commentators look at this and just across the board, say this was a bad idea. And other commentators look at this and say, look at the tremendous faith of Naomi. That she's just giving this advice to Ruth and she's trusting God's sovereignty in it. So the truth is, we're not really sure if this was good or bad advice. And I'm not sure that that's really the point of the story. But I think what is important to draw out of this is that we see God's providence in the way things work out. Uh, I think this is a good enough time as any to talk about the difference between sovereignty and providence because often when people use those two words, they use them interchangeably as if they're the same thing. And there is a slight and subtle difference between the two that I think is worth teasing out a little bit. Sovereignty, when we think about that word, think about the king of a particular country and not in a a modern representative government where the king is a figurehead, but in a classic monarchical position. I mean, imagine the role and the power that a king had. And all throughout history, there were good kings and there were bad kings, but what, what, what was common between them was they had unlimited power within their own nation. Their will was not questioned, their authority was not challenged, their power was far-reaching. What they said went. And when we think about the sovereignty of God, we ought to think about it in a similar sense, that God has the right and power to do everything that he decides to do. And this is what Job is talking about in Job 42, verse 2, where he says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's sovereignty speaks to the idea that what he says goes, that his will ultimately cannot be undermined, it cannot be pushed against. His will will be done. But the word providence is very interesting within the context of Christian history. Because we only find the word that's translated providence, we only find it once in Scripture. But the idea of providence we find all throughout Scripture. Providence comes from a Latin word meaning pro vidi, which literally means to foresee, to know ahead of time. If you think about the English idiom, it would be like saying to somebody, see to it that this thing is done. So one of the oldest sayings of the church and one of the most common sayings within the ancient church was this phrase, Deus pro pro nobis, which literally means God for us. Think of Romans chapter 8. Where it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So my layman's definition of providence is that this is God's wise and generous foresight in the care of his people. And I'll repeat that again. His providence 
is God's wise and generous foresight in the care of his people. So in God's providence, he takes Elimelech's sinful decision to leave Bethlehem and not trust in the one true God and go to Moab. And he takes Malon's sinful decision to marry this non-believing woman And he uses all of that to lead Ruth to this point in her life. And ultimately, what we're going to find out later in the story is that all of this is done for the joy of all people. So understand what that means then. God's providence is not an excuse to sin. As we talked about in the first week, week, grace does not make sin safe. Grace is not a means for us to continue on in sin. That's what Romans chapter 6 would argue. It's not a reason to try to take advantage of God's grace. But in his goodness, God has the ability to redeem the poor and the sinful decisions of our life and the poor and sinful decisions of his people to lead us to greater joy in himself. So whether it was Malon's decision to marry or Naomi's uh, questionable approach in this chapter, the fact is that God can use the poor decisions of people as a testament to his glory and his grace. And look how this begins to play out in verse 5. And Ruth replied, all that you say I will do. Look at the trust, the dependence that she has on Naomi. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. So this is the end of the harvest. This, they have this big celebration. The food is bountiful. The wine is flowing. And Boaz, according to this verse, is feeling good as a result. And so he gets ready for bed and he lies down next to the grain. And this was very common in this culture. I mean, after all, this is his profit for the year. This is all the money that he has in the world is all of this grain bound up in this, in this threshing floor. And so he lays down there to protect it. They're all keeping watch as well as getting rest. And then look what it says in verse 7. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So I mean, imagine this. Boaz is tired. He's exhausted. It's been a long day. He's just had a big meal and a lot to drink. And a few hours later, he wakes up at midnight. He rolls over, and in the haze of everything that's happening, he realizes there's somebody laying at his feet. And he is, according to the Bible, startled. A fair response for a man in his position. And so here is Ruth, cloaked, uh, as she's been instructed by Naomi, cloaked in what would have been a heavy garment. It likely would have covered not only her body, but also her face. And so through the darkness and through her own clothing, he's trying to figure out who this is. And so he asks her, and she says, it is your servant, Ruth. And then she uses this phrase, spread your wings, or your translation of the Bible may say, spread the corner of your garment over me. Now what's happening in this kind of obscure passage. Well, it's reminiscent of what we find in Ezekiel chapter 16, which is the story of God covenanting himself to the nation of Israel. And here's what that passage says, beginning in verse eight of Ezekiel 16. God says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. 
And I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. This is, this is a love poem from the mouth of God to the nation of Israel. I mean, God writes this in a poetic fashion communicating his covenantal love for his people, his desire to care for them and protect them and love them. And Ruth, in using this language, is entering into the same custom, into a custom that was a sign of God's covenant love. She was entering into what was called the leveret custom. And that leveret literally means brother-in-law. It was the idea of what God had established before time, that if someone had a spouse who died, he had established a means by which a widow could still have provision in life. And that was that a brother-in-law, a relative of her deceased husband, could take up the mantle and become the redeemer of the family that he could care for and love and provide for this woman who was desperately in need. And so when Ruth uses this phraseology, understand what's happening. First and practically, she is saying to Boaz, if you want to marry me, I'm available. But second and just as importantly, she's saying... I'm being consistent with the covenant I have made with God. I'm continuing on in my desire to live as someone who belongs to God. And so she's not looking for the most handsome man and she's not looking for the richest man. She is looking for a man who shares her deep-seated belief in Yahweh. Now this is bold by any standard, but especially for a Moabite approaching a Hebrew man. And look at the reaction in verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz's response here, even though we don't read it this way, his response is just as startling as what Ruth had just done. Because given the circumstances, Boaz would have been in his right to shame her away from himself, to call into question her character and her judgment over even entering into a place like what she had entered into. Or if he was a wicked man, he could have tried to take advantage of Ruth. She had made herself incredibly vulnerable and open. But his very first thought is to speak of her kindness. And he says, this kindness that you've shown me, that you're pursuing me for a relationship, it's even greater than the kindness that you showed to Naomi. And more than all of that, he uses this word to describe her. He calls her daughter. Now, no doubt this is a term of affection. It probably also indicates a bit of the age gap that existed in their relationship, but also understand that this is Boaz, in his own way, extending to her the language of covenant. 
I mean, in society and even in churches, there are individuals, um, individuals who come from different backgrounds and different experiences, particularly those who come from sinful backgrounds and have made poor decisions in their, uh, in, in their past, um, are viewed as second-class citizens. I mean, far too often that's the view, and commonly that's the view out in the world. Far too commonly it's the view within the context of the church. But what's declared in this moment where Boaz calls Ruth daughter is he is saying, look, when God sets his love on you, that love is not stratified. Because God's love for you, and in this case, God's love for this foreign woman from a sinful culture had nothing to do with her name. It had nothing to do with what she'd accomplished or done. It had nothing to do with her past or her history. It had nothing to do with her ethnicity or her race. And it had everything to do with the fact that God is, in fact, loving. That God loves because he loves. That he sets his love on people because he is inherently a loving being. And Boaz is recognizing this truth when he calls Ruth daughter. And there's both a spiritual and a practical lesson in that for all of us. First, the spiritual lesson. Our tendency as individuals, our tendency as Christians even, is to assume that there is a point at which we have gone too far. Whereas believers, we sit in the shame and the guilt of our own sin after committing that sin for the tenth or hundredth or thousandth time, and we continue to wonder, can God still love me? Does his affection, is his affection still extended to me? Does he still have a place for me? Does he still care about me? Or maybe we theologically know better than to ask that question. We know that God loves us, but we just wonder if he really likes us all that much. And the lesson shown through the lives of Ruth and Boaz is that your worth is not found in your family. It's not found in your name. It's not found in your history. It's not found in your actions. That your past does not define you. But as Christians, Jesus' life now defines us. So often, the conversation that I have with people, both Christians and non-Christians, often I'll hear them say things like, well, I know God forgives. And I know God can forgive me, and I know maybe even that God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. And I understand what people mean when they say that, but do you understand what you are declaring about God when you think that way, act that way, or talk that way. Understand that what you're declaring in that moment is that somehow you have a higher standard for righteousness than God does. You're declaring that somehow his justice and his sense of right and wrong and his sense of how to make things right through the redemption of Jesus Christ is not quite up to your standard. And likewise, you are believing the lie that Jesus' sacrifice is somehow insufficient for your forgiveness and the redemption of your past. But do you remember the words of Jeremiah 31, 34? Where God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
says, I will remove your sin from me as far as the east is from the west. And what he's trying to illustrate there is that there is no boundary far enough to describe how far God sets our sin apart from him. That his love for us is so intense and so deep and that Jesus Christ's work on the cross was so satisfactory and so sufficient that he is the only being in the world who can actually forgive and forget. In other words, the sin that we seem unable to forget is the same sin that God refuses to remember. So Christian, struggling with guilt and shame for your past, for the sins you committed before coming to Christ, for the sins that you continued in once you were in Christ, for the sins that you continue to struggle with now, understand that those same sins are the ones that God says he refuses to remember. So do not be dominated in your thinking or in your feeling by the mistakes of the past. But through the power of the Spirit, allow the gospel to reveal and address your hidden fears and your shameful attitudes so that you can have calm and confidence in this life. Not only is there a spiritual lesson in what Boaz says to Ruth, but there's also a practical one. Because understand that his, his language to her, this language of calling her daughter, was not only a reference potentially to his age, but it was also a reference to uh, her identification with God. And so as he uses this language, as you think about the relationships that you have with other people, whether it's a romantic relationship or a dating relationship or a marriage relationship or just a relationship, an interpersonal relationship of any kind that you have, would you, like Boaz, recognize that that person, if they are a believer, is first and foremost a child of God? And this is something that's so easy for us to forget, and I think particularly in marriage relationships and dating relationships between two Christians, it's easy for us to forget. But here's what that practically means. And I'll admit to you that even this week, I, I had conviction in my heart around this topic. What it means is that when I interact with my wife, I am first and foremost interacting with God's daughter. And if I were to keep that on my mind, how much would it change the way that I speak and the way that I act? How much more quickly would it lead me to forgiveness? How much more quickly would my own heart be convicted over bitterness or anger? See, we're to, we're to treat one another as believers within the context that, 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 that this language demands. That when you interact with another believer, you're not just interacting with a friend or a loved one or someone that you've met, you are interacting with a child of God. It's formational. Look at verse 12. And now it is true, Boaz says, that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. 
So Boaz says to her, look, I'm not obligated to you, Ruth. He says, but I am willing to pursue you. He says, there's just one little problem. There is another kinsman who's closer to you than I am. There's someone who is closer related by blood than Boaz to Ruth's uh, now departed husband. And so he says, before we can do anything and before I go forward with this, we need to have a conversation with this gentleman because if he wants to redeem you, that's his right to do it and it would be a good and right thing for him to do it. But if he won't, I will. In other words, Boaz, once again, his character is being demonstrated here. He says, I'm not just going to do a generous thing for you. I'm going to do it in the right way. And then notice the honor and the respect with which they interact. Boaz knows that it would be dangerous, potentially, for her to leave that place in the middle of the night, realizing that there's all kinds of danger around them, so he doesn't want her to go, but he finds himself in this precarious position where, he's now, uh, where, where there is now a, at least a risk for their reputations to be attacked, and so what happens? She lays back down at his feet, and she leaves while it's still dark, not because she's hiding anything, but because they realize the importance of their reputation before other people. And we know she's not hiding by leaving early in the morning because what we find in the remainder of the text, which says this, and he said, let it, not, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Once again, his generosity just overflowing. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. In other words, Naomi says, Boaz is going to do the right thing, and he's going to do it quickly. Now I'll be the first to admit to you that this whole text is rather obscure to our Western ears. But there is certainly at least one application that we can draw because it virtually leaps off the page for us in the way that it connects to the things we've been talking about for the past few weeks. Last week in particular, and beginning with Dave's sermon two weeks ago, we talked about this idea that Boaz was a redeemer. And that not only was he a redeemer in the sense that he was going to care for and protect and love Ruth, but in addition, he was, a, he, he was a signpost, an indicator. He was a pointer to the coming great redeemer. He's a symbol in the story of Jesus Christ himself. And therefore, what we see in this story is a picture of the open invitation that we have to come to him. I mean, Ruth is so aware of her need for a redeemer. She's so aware of her need for a savior. She's so aware of her need for provision. And her satisfaction is so dependent on help from the outside that she goes in the middle of the night to the barn to pursue him. See, Ruth was keenly aware of her desperation. And in a very same sense, it is easy for us to forget how truly desperate we are for a redeemer to come in and save us. Our tendency is to view our faith, to view religion, to view our gatherings as a means or an expression of garnering God's favor. As if we are doing something for him, as if we have something to offer. 
what you see in the life of Ruth is a realization that she has nothing to bring to the table. She has nothing to give in exchange. She has no family name. She has no family history. She has no solid religious upbringing. And she comes in absolute desperation and yet confidence that God is going to provide. And in the same way, Christ provides more for his people than we could ever have imagined. He is more gracious, he is more generous, he is more welcoming and inviting than we could have ever hoped from a, from a savior or a redeemer. And so the question then that practically we need to answer within this morning, particularly for those who may not know Christ, for those who are wrestling with their understanding of the existence of Jesus or whether or not Jesus was actually God or if there's even a God altogether, to the extent that you've been convinced of those things, the question that you now must ask is what is it that keeps you from coming to Christ? And for far too many, what keeps them away is a lack of their own realization of their own desperation. But Christ waits with arms open, inviting and calling whosoever will may come, an invitation to receive redemption. And may we be humble enough and aware enough of our own need to come running to him for the satisfaction that only he can bring. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for texts that stretch us, that stretch our understanding that bring information and knowledge that we didn't have previously. And I thank you for texts that point us to the redemption that you and you alone can bring. I thank you for the demonstration of faith that Ruth had in this text. That a woman who had nothing to offer and nothing to bring is trusting the counsel of someone who cared for her immensely. And that she was confident enough in your provision and in your generosity that she followed through with what she'd been told. And so God, from a text that is strange to our ears and perhaps leaves as many questions as we've received answers, would we see in it the beauty of a redeeming God, of a savior who longs to bring comfort and provision to a people who are desperately in need of it. And so Lord, whatever things in our, are in our lives that keep us from looking to you, that keep us from coming to you, that keep us from hoping in you, that keep us from trusting in you, would you reveal those things to our own heart and would you reveal then where ultimately our hope is currently lying? Help us to realize that we are in a place of desperation, that to the extent that we are looking to anything other than you, for our hope and our confidence, we are put, putting and placing our trust in something that cannot bear its weight. So Lord, help us to see you through this story. Help us to see examples on which to model our lives, challenges to the way that we think, and more than anything, an image of a savior who is a redeemer, a lover, and a king. And we thank you for what it is that you can and will do in our hearts. And it's in your name we pray.